world as though we do not have enough, we are not enough, we're not good enough, and we try to acquire and accumulate experiences and things and people to fill that gap, to feel better about ourselves. I sometimes tell the story about this time I was in New York City, and a friend took me into this magnificent paper goods store where everything is made of paper. It's notebooks and wrapping paper and lampshades and everything is beautiful. The very first time I went in there, this friend was bringing me in and we paused on the threshold and she said to me, this store is going to satisfy all of your paper needs. (laughs) And I looked at her and I said, I don't have any paper needs. But within two minutes of being in the store, I felt like I needed everything. I needed absolutely everything. And that is so much of the way we can walk around. And, and we may even come to a retreat, to a meditative experience, with that same attitude. We're going to acquire and get and hold on to and preserve and, and be proud of some kind of trophy of experience. And then we'll feel okay. But really, the whole basis of meditation practice is like a revolution in consciousness. It's saying, we're actually okay already. That underneath our fears and habits and conditioning of mind, there are capacities we have as human beings to understand our lives, to connect to ourselves and to others, to love, to have compassion, to be aware, that these capacities are part of simply being. It's not something that only the the special people have or the talented people have or those who lived long ago in another time and place. We practice meditation to return to an experience of those deeper qualities, to bring them forth, to cultivate them, to give them some time, some space. And so that normal kind of grabbing, clinging attitude doesn't really have a place here. It's actually a big relief. And it's confounding. Just as a simple example, one of the kind of basic meditation instructions, which we'll do a little bit tonight before we switch over to the a more formal loving-kindness practice tomorrow morning, is to sit down and simply feel your breath. To use the breath as an anchor for attention. So much of the time our attention is just scattered, it's fragmented, it's all over the place. And what we practice in that simple way is to gather our energy in, to shepherd it back to the present moment, to make that energy available to us again. That act of gathering is known as concentration. And it's considered both the path of power because it's very empowering to suddenly have this energy with us instead of dispersed all over the place. And it's also considered a path of healing because that movement toward 
bringing the energy together, is bringing our life force together into unification instead of fragmentation of our being. It's a very simple practice. Our Burmese teacher, his name is Sayada Upandita, has this kind of trick question he'll ask people. He'll say, about how many breaths can you pay attention to before your mind starts to wander? And the reason that it's a trick question is that they believe a good answer is like two or three. Because if you say two or three breaths before your mind is off to the past or to the future, they feel that you really are paying attention to how things are. You're aware of how our minds are actually trained. If you say, oh, I can be with the breath for 40 minutes and my mind never wanders, they think you are so lost in space that you don't have a clue what's going on. But there's something in us, of course, being asked that question that wants to be able to proclaim, hey, you know, I could be with the breath for an hour and my mind never wanders. And so we try to squeeze our attention down and grab hold of the breath and tighten up and try to reject the thoughts that come our way. And we only get more stressed and more tense. Really, the art of meditation practice, whether it's loving kindness or any other, It's mysterious because it happens not through trying to clamp down or acquire more breaths and more breaths, but the art of meditation happens in the moment when we realize our attention has wandered. When we wake up to say, oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt a breath. What do we do right then? Can we have some gentleness in that moment, a lack of judgment, some kindness toward ourselves, some amount of forgiveness? Can we let go? Can we practice the incredible art of being able to begin again? It's in these ways that the profound transformations of meditation take place not in being able to say, hey, you know, I could be with 300 breaths and my mind never wandered. It's in this complete reorientation of how we are with ourselves and what we discover about a sense of possibility. One of the things I love about meditation practice is that I find the really big life lessons happen in these little itty-bitty packages. On one level, it seems like nothing much. I sat down tried to feel the breath, found myself planning a vacation, let go and came back, like, so what? But that's an extraordinary thing to be practicing, to be able to let go without chastising ourselves or seeking to punish ourselves, to be able to begin again and realize that we can fully begin again, that this moment is a new moment, It means that in our lives, we can lose sight of our aspiration and we can begin again. We can make a mistake and we can begin again. We can stray from our chosen course and we can begin again. 
This is like the bone-deep learning that happens in meditation practice. When we practice, really everything happens. And there's no way that you can do this wrong. There's no way you can fail at it. Because what happens, what arises in our experience, is far less important than how we are relating to what arises in our experience. Are we practicing, are we developing compassion and care and connection and awareness in the face of all these different things? That's really the question. And everything does arise. Sometimes I liken meditation practice to being like going into an old attic room and turning on the light. We do that, and it doesn't matter if it's been dark for a day or a week or 10,000 years. We turn on the light, which is like the light of awareness, and we see everything. We see these beautiful, glorious treasures. They're so incredible. We can hardly even imagine that such a, a beautiful thing exists in our very own attic. And we see these dusty, neglected corners, and we might think, ooh, I better clean that up. That doesn't look too good. And we see these very distressing objects. We might think, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing here? We see everything. And so a whole range of experiences is a natural part of this exploration. We have beautiful moments and trying moments and boring moments, and everything is included in the development of our understanding and our compassion. There's no way to do it wrong, to be having a wrong experience. What's most important is is the openness and the care we show to all of those experiences and being able as much as possible to relate to them as they are in the moment. It's very common in a retreat environment for the first few days to be absolutely the most difficult part of the retreat. For most of us, it's a pretty big adjustment to slowing down, being silent, looking within. Sometimes when I'm beginning a retreat myself that I'm sitting, I feel as though it's like there are these two voices inside my mind. One voice says, well, there's nothing happening here. It must be time to go to sleep. And even if I've slept for 15 hours, it doesn't matter. I come, I sit down on the cushion, I'm gone. The other voice says, well, there's nothing happening here. Let's make something happen. And this torrent of planning and creativity and thinking and just this cascade happens until I get really restless. That movement, even a careening movement from sleepiness to restlessness, is very common in the beginning. And it's not something you need to feel badly about. But what's intriguing is the thought that looks back at that hour sitting or whatever and says, oh no, an entire retreat just like this. 
that's the moment of some learning. Are we taking the present moment's difficult experience and projecting it into an unchanging future? Are we defining ourselves by it? Oh, everybody else here is sitting in perfect bliss and I'm the one who's falling asleep. All those thoughts may come, but that is the practice, that is the learning. Can we come back to how things actually are? Be with them as they are. The particular practice we emphasize in this retreat, in this first seven days, although we will also include some guidance on kind of foundation mindfulness practices like being with the breath, the particular practice that we emphasize is metta or loving kindness. Those of you who walked in the front door notice the word metta up above um, the door. When we first moved in, in 1976, the building was owned by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and that's what it said up above the doorway. So we got some poor person in the middle of February to get up on a very tall ladder. And we said, okay, see if you can rearrange these letters so that they say something that is meaningful about us. And he got up there and rearranged the letters and came up with the word metta, which means loving kindness. And as we were a group of people, in a, in a way bringing an Asian tradition over to the West, we had to discuss that quite a lot. You know, people said, well, it's not an English word, it's too weird, you know, you should have an English word up there and no one knows what it means, and we had all of these discussions about it, but in the end, the metta stayed up, which I'm very happy about, because I like it when, say, the UPS delivery person calls for directions, and somebody here says, well, it's a large brick building with white pillars, and it has this word up above, and they say, what word? So we say metta, and they say, what does that mean? And we say that means love. That means loving kindness. It is a, a representation of what we care about the most in terms of our, our relatedness to the world and to ourselves. The practice of metta is a practice, again, where we're not straining and striving and trying to contrive something that isn't there but we're returning to, to a deeper sense of, of connection, of discovery. We're uncovering capacities that may have been hidden or that we may not trust. When we talk about metta, it's not in the sense of a feeling or emotion or sentiment that we somehow try to manufacture but it is a vision of life that is based on how we do view ourselves and our own wish to be happy, how we view a sense of connection that all of us share, no matter what our particular relationship. And so beginning tomorrow morning, we'll, we'll explore that, that specific practice. I think I'll just I'll close with a quotation by the poet William Stafford, um, and then Miyashin will uh, 
continue speaking as we formally begin the retreat. William Stafford wrote, The things you do not have to say make you rich. Saying the things you do not have to say weakens your talk. Hearing the things you do not need to hear dulls your hearing. The things you know before you hear them, this is you, and this is the reason that you are in the world. So we've come together in a remarkable place for a remarkable experience, to not have to say the things we don't have to say and hear the things we don't have to hear and to be able to go within in a a very supportive way to remember the things we actually do know and be able to, to honor that and to trust that. So welcome. I'd like to say welcome, too. I know uh, just before leaving home to come over here, I had this just great eruption of joy. You know, it doesn't seem to matter if I'm sitting in the meditation hall as a yogi, as you are, or sitting up here. It's just such a blessing. You know, we are so fortunate to have this opportunity in our lives. Uh, just last month, I was able to sit for a month myself and just feel that renewed vigor and appreciation of this practice, these teachings, and what they have to offer us. And, you know, I find it such a powerful moment to step into a retreat. You know, we've put a lot of work into getting here. It's not easy to pull the conditions in our lives together to go on retreat. There's so many things that call us elsewhere. And yet, each of us has said in some way, this is important to me. You know, this is what I want to spend my one-week holiday doing. Or um, just making that effort to get here, to do this. And in just a few moments, we are going to together really put voice to honoring our intentions and coming here, um, and the nobility of these intentions, Um, We do this in the way of formally taking what's called the refuges and precepts. (coughs) Excuse me. These refuges and precepts are something that's traditionally done at the beginning of a Buddhist retreat. Because these are practices that help to keep us inspired along the way. They... The word refuge itself points towards shelter, uh, safety, being able to turn the mind in a way that is not straight into the distress, the turmoil of life, but where we can really touch into an inspiration that will help guide us to living the full potential of being a human being. Precepts are just five training guidelines that enable us to come together as a community and to live in harmony, safety, with trust, and allow this noble work that we're doing here to unfold. So these refuges and precepts help to give support, context, a container 
to the sometimes very difficult and challenging work that we're undertaking in this time together. So first to speak about the refuges. Often in our life, we take refuge in uh, the conditions of our lives, things such as careers, relationships, uh, pleasant mind states, sense pleasure, having good health. And these things are all things that are subject to change, therefore unreliable. And we may find that we are happy so long as as things are the way we want them to be, but we tend to suffer as these things change. So then the question comes, what is it that we can take refuge in? What can really uh, support us in the unfolding of our hearts, in honoring our deepest aspirations of heart and mind? The Buddha talked about how there was three refuges, These are sometimes called the triple gems, jewels, that which is precious, beautiful, indestructible. These refuges being the first, taking refuge in the Buddha. Taking refuge in the Buddha can be interpreted in different ways. And just to say here, because I remember um, quite strongly what it was like the first time I went to a retreat and someone started talking about the refuges and precepts. And, you know, I had come to the retreat because I wanted to be enlightened. I wanted to be liberated. And here someone started talking about um, refuges, Buddhism, Buddhist teachings, and I went, huh, I didn't come here to become a Buddhist. No, I wasn't interested. I didn't come to take on more beliefs, more... um, ideas. I wanted to uncloak, unveil. And so as I speak about these refuges, just to really look into your own hearts and minds and see what they mean to you, what it can point towards in your own experience, not letting the words be a barrier, but just like a finger pointing to the moon to find, so we can find what is of refuge. So taking refuge in the Buddha Many of us are inspired by the historical Buddha, the man who lived over 2,500 years ago and was able to find the way out of suffering, to liberate the mind, the mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's inspiring in that if one person can do it, it must be possible for us too. The Buddha wasn't some god, some chosen one, but someone who cared so deeply and was willing to investigate deeply to understand the truth, to find freedom, and then to share this way. So many of us find inspiration in this way. We can also take refuge in Buddha nature, that we all have Buddha nature. The same possibility lies within each and every one of us.
we can take refuge in the qualities that the Buddha mind, the awakened mind, embraces. Qualities such as loving-kindness, wisdom, compassion, equanimity. And knowing that our practice is what guides us to uncovering these qualities within our own hearts and minds. So the first refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha. The second refuge, taking refuge in the Dhamma. And Dhamma um, being the second refuge, this is a Pali word. Pali is an ancient language in which, one one of the ancient languages in which these teachings have been preserved. And throughout the retreat, you'll probably hear some of these words. And um, we'll try to translate them as we go. So taking refuge in the Dhamma. Taking refuge in the way things are. Or the natural lawfulness of life. That everything is unfolding according to natural laws. Sometimes Dhamma gets translated as truth. When we take refuge in the Dhamma, it's taking refuge in the truth of things. The truth that is in everything. It's in all of our mind-body experience. I find that this helps me to surrender to the way things are unfolding. Things are unfolding according to natural law. It helps me to realize that the Dhamma is here and now, available within the experience of this present moment. It's not separate, not something that we need to find outside ourselves, but is inclusive of everything. So the second refuge, taking refuge in the truth, the lawfulness of life, the way things are, The third refuge, taking refuge in the Sangha. Sangha can be translated in one sense as a group of like-minded people coming together to hear the teachings and to do the practice. One of the ways that Sangha um, relates is that there's what's called a noble Sangha. The noble Sangha is all those beings who have walked this path before us and have become fully realized. And we can take refuge in these beings, these beings that faced their own pain, their own suffering, and they too found the way to freedom. There's also the ordained Sangha, that there's been many, many, many people since the time of the Buddha and in times before that who ordained where they took robes, shaved their heads, um, and lived by many different rules. And during that, their life, they really committed themselves 
to the understanding of these teachings, to practice and to convey these teachings. And you know, it's through the ordained Sangha that these teachings are still alive in the world today. And then we have the, the Sangha that is us. That is us coming here and uh, coming here together to embark on this journey of awakening. And through Sangha, on whatever level, we can find huge support. You know, we'll experience it in our time here as we sit here and we get restless and we get frustrated. And the person beside you is sitting so silently, so quietly. And it just helps you to be with your own experience. It's not that they get up and say something to you, do something. Just them having the willingness to look within silently helps you to be here. And we find immense support in coming together. You know, we're doing practices in this time where not many people in the world actually undertake. So to have be surrounded by people who have a similar interest is really a precious opportunity and gives great support. So these three refuges, taking refuge in Buddha, Buddha nature, taking refuge in the Dhamma, the truth, and taking refuge in Sangha, or community of people with this aspiration to awaken. Also in being here, we want to be doing this work within a container where we feel safe where we feel supported, where we aren't fearful of what's going on around us. And this is why we ask that during your time here that you live by the five training guidelines or five precepts that the Buddha offered. These guidelines are really guidelines for anybody who wants to live a happy and peaceful life. They're a way where we can let our aspirations of heart and mind be guided and be manifested into how we live our life, our actions and our words, so that they reflect these deepest aspirations. These uh, five training guidelines help us to bring awareness to our intentions, our motivations, and they also help us to clearly understand uh, cause and effect, how what we do and say in the world has impact, has an effect on those people around us. We don't live in a vacuum. We are deeply interconnected. And by honoring these five precepts, it's really a way of expressing and caring for the world around us. You know, in living in such a turbulent world right now, if we can call forth and bring great intention to the intention to live by these guidelines, it's a wonderful offering to the world. 
These guidelines are very simple in some way, and as I say them, and we explore them in our own experience, we will often find they can be quite challenging. These guidelines come out of the Buddha's understanding. So the first of these uh, precepts is to refrain from killing, to refrain from taking life. On the most basic level, to refrain from killing other human beings. And then we take it beyond this. We take it into all forms of life, which helps us to really cultivate a reverence for all life, all kinds of life. You know, there's many forms of life where we tend to not so highly regard. You know, it might be that mosquito buzzing around your ear in the middle of the night. There's moments where anger, aversion, and we just you know, can have that habit of lashing out and taking a life without even having been aware of it. So just by undertaking to um, live by this guideline will help us to notice where we draw lines, where, where um, we might not be able to stand so steady in the face of difficult emotions arising and have that potential to lash out in harmful ways. And really, you know, if, even if we just took this precept on the level of not to take uh, a life of another human being, if everybody in the world did this, it would be a very different world. So just seeing what this precept is in our life. The second precept, to refrain from stealing or taking that which is not freely offered. That which doesn't belong to us. Often we can be living our lives from a place of entitlement where we might just think that we can take what we want without really having regard for others' needs, without having regard for the fact that we live on a planet with limited resources. This this precept really helps us to cultivate non-greed, to become more aware of what we need in the world, what we take, where this sense of entitlement comes in, and to live honoring and respecting material goods. The third precept is to refrain from sexual misconduct. We probably all are aware of what a powerful energy sexual energy is, and maybe at times have done harm to others without meaning to, but with not being very conscious of this energy. In the world, we see sexual misconduct in simple ways. Uh, could be even flirtatious energy, where someone doesn't quite understand that that's what it is, takes it more seriously, and ends up being hurt. Or we see it in ways of rape, um, child abuse, in ways that are very harmful. And so we can probably readily understand the importance of learning to be with this energy, 
not needing to make it bad or wrong, but to come to understand it so that we can make wise choices in our lives. One of the ways that we can do this is during retreat, we change this precept to be to refrain from sexual activity. And this gives us the opportunity to explore more deeply this energy in a different way, to learn to allow it to be there without having to do anything about it, to watch its changing nature, to feel it, touch it, taste it, in a way where we don't do anything with it. It helps us to understand it more deeply. It also helps us to conserve energy and to turn our full energy towards this practice of awakening. The fourth precept is to refrain from false speech. This is speech that is lies, gossip, useless, harsh. I think this is probably an advanced practice. You know, it tends to be a very difficult practice for many of us. There's so much power in speech, and yet so often in our lives we pay very little attention to what we say. How many times in our lives have we said something and then totally regretted it in the next moment? And sometimes those moments will take years for the healing to happen out of the impact of our words. The Buddha talked about speaking that which is both true and useful, helpful, that which creates harmony, peace. During our time here, we will uh, have another form of right speech, which is actually noble silence, where we will, for the period of this retreat, uh, be refraining from speaking to each other in the ways that we normally do in our lives, of chatting, talking, discussing. Um, And, you know, I know what it's like on your first retreat. You you come and you think, a week of not talking to anybody? No way. (laughs) I'll go nuts. How is this possible? And it can be really scary. You know, and just to really acknowledge that if it's your first retreat, it can be totally frightening to think about not talking for a week. And yet, we do it because it really is such a great gift. It's rare and precious to have this opportunity, and it allows us to be with our experience in a really unique way, where we aren't having to explain to our neighbor continually why we're doing what we're doing, what our experience is, how our experience compares to their experience. And it just allows us to be with this, whatever is going on. It can come as such a great relief. It can, you know, many people at the end of their first uh, silent retreat say that the silence was the most beautiful piece of all. With this noble silence, what it's referring to, and I think John may have said a bit, I'm not sure, so I'll just uh, say a little bit, um, is to refrain from speaking to each other, to refrain from writing notes to each other, 
there will be opportunity to ask questions in the hall. To it, there'll be interviews where you will be speaking. So it's not like you know if you're going through some great struggle that you have to be totally alone with it. The support is there, but it's just that we watch how we get that support. So, um, so speaking to either the staff, writing notes to the staff if it's needed, essential, or to us as teachers. Also, during this time, to refrain from reading. You know, even the great inspiring Dharma books that we have. Because really, when we're here, we're stepping into a laboratory. You know, looking into our own experience. It's not about believing what somebody said, but looking to inquire for what, our, what, what we see for ourselves. So we really let go of having a lot of input. And you'll hear enough, you know. We'll say enough. Um, probably to the point where you wish we'd shut up <laughs> at times. Um, and also to refrain from journaling. You know, that that's a way that we can really kind of rev up and engage the mind. And journaling can be a great practice at times. But this, at this time, we're just practicing in a different way. So if you can just stick to the guidelines that we're offering, and that way you'll see what this practice has to offer. And just to remember that as we settle into the silence, it doesn't have to be done grimly, that there can be a natural beauty to settling into the silence. The fifth precept is to refrain from the use of intoxicants, intoxicants which dull the mind, cloud the mind. And this is because our whole work here, the undertaking that we're doing, is really to help bring about wisdom, clarity, understanding. And so the use of intoxicants can be undermining our work. Just to say that this doesn't include medication. So if you're on some form of medication, please continue to take it. These precepts, five training guidelines... Being our guidelines in living here as a community to help support us, they point towards living a life of harmony, of respect, caring, a way of expressing our metta or loving kindness. In undertaking them, it's to the, have the intention to uphold them, not to hold them As the Ten Commandments, there will be times when we're challenged and may find that we have broken one. And in those moments, it's as Sharon has said, it's to recognize what has happened and to begin again, to recommit again. We can really let both the refuges and precepts be practices in our lives and let them be an exploration. Let them become alive. What do they mean to us? Let them become vitally alive. So in just a few moments, we're going to stand up and have a stretch. And then when we sit back down, we will be chanting the refuges and precepts together. 
Uh, during this time, we're going to hand out the, the sheets so that you will be able to see what it is that we're chanting. And then we'll have a short sitting together to enter into the retreat. So if you want to take a minute to stand up and stretch... As you look at the chant sheet, you'll notice that on one side there's um, the chant in a funny language. The language is Pali. And this is the way we will be chanting it tonight. I like to chant in Pali because this is one of the ancient languages that the teachings have been preserved in. And it means that through over 2,500 years, people have been chanting in this same language. You know, all of these, all the beings who have embarked on this journey of awakening have done the same chant. And around the world today, we find uh, in many different countries this same chant being done. So it's a way of joining our voice with the voices of many, of the like-minded people in the world. The chant begins by uh, acknowledging where these teachings have come from. And as you can see, the first line repeats itself, so it's done three times. When we do the first line, we'll be doing it in the form of call and response. But as we move on to the next two lines, which are a repetition, we can all do it together at that time. When we come down to the three refuges... We'll do the first stanza again in the form of call and response. And then the next two stanzas, there's just one new word that gets added, first one being dutiyampi, um, and then it repeats. So again, we can move into doing it together. When we come down to the five precepts, we'll do it in call and response again and the dedication. So this will be your test to see if you remembered all of that. <laughs> As you chant, you know, if you're not comfortable really chanting these words in Pali, to sit and reflect on what it is you can turn your heart towards that inspires you and gives you a sense of refuge. And to, uh, at some point, to read through this in English, to really take a look at what these refuges and precepts are. And if it's something that really resonates you, it's a practice that you can take on throughout the retreat, and in your whole life. Namo tasa Namo 
We'll just have a, a brief meditation now. If you could sit comfortably with your back erect without being strained or overarched. Sometimes people imagine there's like a brick wall behind them. And starting with your lowest vertebrae, one by one, just raise your back up against that wall and relax. And close your eyes, unless you're accustomed to sitting with your eyes open, or unless you become very sleepy, in which case it's a good idea to open your eyes. Just settle your attention on the feeling of the in and out breath wherever you feel it most distinctly. The in and out movement of air at the nostrils or the rising, falling movement of the chest or the abdomen. Just let your mind rest there. And see if you can feel just one breath. Without consideration of what's gone before and without leaning forward even for the very next breath. Just this one. You can use a quiet mental notation of in and out or rising, falling to support the awareness of the breath. Let your mind rest in the sensations. And whenever you find your attention has wandered, don't worry about it. That is the magic moment when you realize that you've become disconnected or distracted, in that moment, see if you can realize that you've become distracted. Gently let go. Shepherd your attention back and begin again. If you have to begin again over and over again, that's fine. 